In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Not taking any calls because I'm on Instagram Live for today's show, uh, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Before I get started, I wanted to wish a very happy birthday to Sarah, who is right now in Iran. Happy birthday, wishing you all the best. I uh, hope you enjoy yourself there uh, with your family. Happy birthday. Uh, let's get to the books of the week. The book for this week is 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I had bought this book a couple months ago, and I actually thought it would be a good time to read it going into the new year, where we think about time sometimes more directly or clearly because we're thinking about the changing of a year, and it brings up all these thoughts of what are we doing with our time. It tends to be a time that we reflect on how we've been using our time and also look forward to how we would like to use or change ourselves uh, you know, we talk about new year, new me, which I'll um, maybe talk about that idea too next week when I talk about this book. But I will share some of my thoughts on time and also the ways we think about time and how that can affect us psychologically. But of course, about this book as well, which I can't tell you about because I haven't read it, but will next week, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. Okay, the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is The Family Firm by Emily Oster. The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. And I really like uh, Emily Oster's approach to these topics. So I've read her other book, Crib Sheet, or one of her other books, Crib Sheet, where she talks about birth to preschool years. Um, looking at the research and giving some of her thoughts on what the research shows about the different major decisions that come up during that time. She has a book I haven't read yet called Expecting Better, which is about pregnancy and doing this same thing as uh, the subtitle here is a data-driven guide. And that's essentially what she does herself, a professor of um, economics. She's very good at looking at the data and trying to see what it tells us and also what it doesn't tell us. So expecting better is for the birth or, or up before birth pregnancy, then crib sheet. We have birth till preschool. And then here we have a book for the early school years. And I haven't read Expecting Better, but I'd recommend that one even without reading it based on her work and how she writes these book books where what I appreciate her appreciate about her approach is she doesn't just say this is the best way to do it. This is how everyone should do it. Because realistically, what we find is that often the choices that we have to make, it's not that there's a black and white about this is going to be the best for everyone. Often it's that actually the choices don't matter that much as far as to say for everyone it's going to be the same thing. 
What can be really important is making the right decision for your family. And so I like her approach in that she looks at the data, presents the data, and gives recommendations in a way, but not some type of a prescriptive recommendation that you should all do this or that, but more of here is what some of the data is telling us, and based on that, you have to make the best decision for your family. And I might touch on this later in the show as well, but I think what's important to mention just here is that what we tend to think is because I'm you know, want to do the best for my child. And because we're so anxious about making the right decisions and so fearful of making the wrong decisions, we can be very quick to look for what we hope is just a right answer. Some authority to tell us this is exactly what you have to do and there's no other way to do it and everyone should do it one way. But the reality is, as I often like to say on the show, is no one is going to do the thinking for you. Even that's something I'm aware of as I talk on my show is I do share my perspective. I even do give advice, especially if I'm talking to an individual. But I recognize that I'm giving my view on things, my perspective on things, my opinion about things. But at the end of the day, I can't tell you exactly what to do in your life. That's not possible. So I like that approach that uh, Emily Oster has. And in this book, she has it as well. So we're always looking for someone to think for us. At the end of the day, Someone might do some of the research for us or might look into things, but they're not going to make the decision for you. And so this title of the book, The Family Firm, um, it's, you know, that word firm can mean lots of things. In this case, it means like a business. And so what she talks about is that in those earlier decisions that people make for their family or for their children, the she gives this example of you go to your baby and they've you know, have green poop in their, um, you know, in their diaper and you worry about it. And it's an issue you try to find out what's going on, but you quickly can solve it and it deals, you know, it becomes a very quickly dealt with issue. Like, okay, let me call the pediatrician. Pediatrician says, says it's actually okay. All you need to do is, let's say, give more water, do this and your baby's going to be fine. And it's just quickly dealt with. But the decisions you make in early childhood, she talks about how those can seem more long-lasting, they're bigger decisions, and we have to be aware of approaching them the right way. So again, it's not about here's what you do in every situation, but she gives you more of a framework, which I'll get into, to help you look at and then make a decision for each of the decisions you have to make. So she says that because of that, she recommends, and it's also from her own experience teaching at business schools, to approach your family in a way like it's a business, which can sound bad, but um, it could be good in the sense of recognizing putting that thought, deliberation, and preparation into running your family and then the choices that you make. So I actually thought it was interesting. So I didn't know based on the title, that's what it was about, or that's the philosophy, but that's something that she shares. So To begin with, she recommends, in a way, coming up with something like a mission statement for your family, which can sound surprising, but this is the big picture part of what she's talking about. So what are the things that are important to you? And if you have a partner and you're going to have kids together, what are the things that are important for us as a family? What do we want our family to look like? What are the values of our family? You know, we might think of culture as something like the Iranian culture, American culture, 
or even maybe in some field, the the legal culture, something like that. But every family has its own culture, things that we value, things that we prioritize, the ways we spend time, the ways we communicate, the ways we won't allow communicating, let's say disrespect. And whether you want to think about it or not, you're creating a family culture. It's there. And actually, even before that, your relationship, if you're in a romantic relationship, has a culture, the ways we interact. Are we the kind of couple that talks about things or we're not the type of couple that talks about things? Do we cross these certain lines or we don't? Do we make sure we talk in this way or that way or communicate this often, see each other this often? All of those things are, in a way, a culture, a type of set of values, principles, behaviors, things that are accepted and not accepted that help create a framework for how things go forward. And so you're going to create that with your family as well. And so at the back of the book, she has these types of like worksheets. She says she loves workbooks herself that can actually help you in coming up with this big picture. It even includes things like what do our weekends look like or what do our weekdays look like? She talks a lot about uh, even family dinners or meals. Are you going to be the kind of family that every day you have at least one meal together or dinner together you know maybe it's a different meal or no that's not going to be a priority for you because if we come up with this big picture it helps us figure out a lot of other things so if you're a kind of family that has family dinner a non-negotiable in the sense that we're all going to be there at 6 p.m that can affect the decisions you make for your kids if there's something that goes until 8 p.m regularly you might decide, well, that won't work for our family in the way we want to do things. So as she explains it, when you come up with this framework and you come up with the big picture of what you want your family to look like, it helps you make a lot of other decisions rather than making them each one as it happens. And it reminds me of some of the work she mentioned Stephen Covey in this book, author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, along with some other books, and Clayton Christensen, how will you measure your life, that if we're not careful and deliberate about how we do things, you could end up in a place that is very far from where you want to be. So for example, if spending time with your kids is important, but you don't create some type of structure around that, you might say, okay, well, I'm going to say an extra hour at work this day. Oh, you know, I have to stay two hours this day. And then after a while, you might be the kind of person that gets home at 9 or 10 p.m. after your kids are asleep, never wanting that to be the case, but slowly slowly you ended up into that place. So I think that really is a good point that she makes here and something that I highly recommend to couples. Um, you know, reading a book like Eight Dates by the Gottmans and the Schwartzes is a good book that, and along with something like this, of thinking deliberately about how you're creating your family life, not just seeing what happens especially because once starts life one once life starts happening at you or to you it could be so hard to make these decisions and to create the type of life that you want for yourself and your family so i thought that's very important and then so she gets you know that's the beginning part of creating that framework together but then next she gets into the four f's about making a choice when it comes to let's say something comes up do we want our child to go to preschool early um, or later? Or do we want our child to go to a private school or a charter school or the public school? And so she says there's the four F's. The first one is frame the question. Uh, 
which might seem easy because you're saying, well, we're trying to decide should you go to public school or private school. But she says, actually, that might be too vague. So you really have to ask yourself, what is the specific question we're looking at? So instead of what kind of school is right, it's more like, should we send our child to school A or school B? So let's first understand the question, which actually is quite important because often um, I talked about this in The Art of Logic. It came up that if you don't know what the question is, you really are going to have a hard time answering it. Or if you're too broad in what you think the question is, you'll have a hard time answering it. So after you frame the question, she recommends then fact-finding, which is gathering the evidence and the data and the details that you need. So this could be things like looking at the research, things that she brings up in the book on the topic. Then, of course, investigating into, let's say, it's two different schools, learning about the schools, what they're like. You might even ask other parents for their input. You might want, obviously, to ask your child's input in the matter since they're going to be going to the school. But here's where you gather the evidence and do the fact-finding to help you make your decision. And then third F is final decision, which seems obvious, but actually if you don't make it in a more structured way, a few things can happen. One is you might avoid making a decision. So something that we do when we're anxious about a decision, a way that we can essentially fool ourselves is say, well, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still, you know, getting the evidence or I don't want to rush to the decision. And yes, you don't want to rush a decision, especially if it's important in any way, but we can use this as an excuse, an avoidance tactic. I'm afraid of making this decision, so I'm, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still thinking about it. And so we have to put sometimes a pressure now when you're making a decision, let's say for your child's school, you might be forced to make the decision because school is coming up, but we have to be aware that we at times will put off the decision because it makes us anxious. So it can be important to set a time even for this is going to be when we make the decision, even she recommends doing things like having meetings, which could even be with your kids, but having a type of a final decision meeting. And then the fourth F is follow-up, which, um, you know, she says if it's an important decision, it deserves follow-up. And very often we don't do that. We just make a decision and say, that's it. We're afraid to revisit it because if it's wrong, maybe we'll feel guilty. If it's wrong, maybe we have to change it uh, or do something about it. But all of these should not be reasons to avoid this. So we want to make sure we do a follow-up, checking in, let's say, with your child. How are they feeling about it? How is it going? And if so, do we need to make some adjustments, change course completely, maybe make some small changes, or keep things exactly as they are? But we want to make sure we follow up. And she talks about how this combination for her is like, so we have this big picture, and then we you know, create that framework with these four Fs to making each decision. But what she talks about is how this doesn't mean you're going to get all the, make all the right decisions. And that's not even a possible goal. You want to make the best decisions that you can, but you can't think I have to make all the right decisions or else. And I think that's a pressure that parents can feel and put on themselves that I have to make the right decision. And because of that, we do something like I was talking about before of avoiding making decisions or choices because we're so afraid to get it wrong, not realizing is something we have to often remind ourselves is that not making a decision is a decision itself. You're doing inaction or you're choosing inaction or every day you don't make that choice, that itself is a choice of not choosing. And so we have to be aware of not making that mistake. And as she puts it, what we can do then is if we take some type of approach like this of having a bigger picture and a framework and then uh, being very deliberate in how we make our choices, we can at least feel good about the effort 
and the deliberation we put into making each decision, even though we won't get everything right, but all we can do is control what's in our uh, control or take care of what's in our control. And after that, we have to then see what happens. And so I think this is a very good mindset to have of being deliberate, being careful about what you're doing, and then making the best choice you can. And then you have to live with those results because obviously you have no other way of dealing with things, but it makes it so you're more likely to make that choice. Now, after the break, I might get a little bit into some of the things she she talks about, but I also wanted to get into some other themes related to parenting um, that I thought about while reading this book. Again, the book is The Family Firm by Emily Oster. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I was talking about the book, The Family Firm by Emily Oster, and I discussed in more detail the framework, which to me is the biggest take-home of the book, which is having first this big picture mindset of your family, a mission statement, what do we want our family to look like? And then when you come to each choice using those four Fs to work through making the decision. And then, as I, I said, I think it's so important that we have to make a decision and then live with that decision. And the thing is, when it comes to making decisions in general, I think it's a very challenging part of life because we don't know what what's right. And um, I'm reminded of Soren Kierkegaard's quote of um, life only makes sense backwards, but can only be lived forwards. It's not a, I'm not, I think I'm missing a few words or adding a few words there. But I think it's a very nice quote because it's a reminder that, yes, in hindsight, everything can make sense and be easy, but we have to live life going forward, meaning that we have to make a decision and then live with it. We can't know everything and then go back and make a new decision uh, to change things. So we have to make a decision always with incomplete information. We always know that we can't know everything and can't know how things are going to turn out. But what we would hope is that we're saying, based on that being the reality, I want to make the most deliberate choice I can make. I want to do the research I can. I want to fact find if you have a partner, talk to them, talk to the people that are relevant, and then make a decision that I feel good about the process of making my decision. I can't yet know about the result because we can't know the result beforehand, but I'm going to make the best decision process, decision-making process, and then I can feel good about that. And I feel like this book does a great job of giving you that. Now, she does get into different... Um, uh, issues that come up in parenting. School choice, actually a term I didn't know called red shirting. It's often used in college athletics here in the United States, but here it's about should you hold your child back from starting preschool and and things like that? Because if they're older for their age when they start, yes, sometimes we think, well, we want to push them forward. But if you start and you're younger, both physically smaller, but then also intellectually, let's say when you're five years old, five years old and a day is very different from five years old and 11 months, just even proportion-wise to their life, uh, 11 months would be a big deal. What are the right choices? So she gets into different uh, you know, decisions you have to make, things like school, um, extracurricular activities, you know, sports, all these types of things that parents might think about and worry about. And, you know, one of the take-homes that came up time and time again is that the different decisions that we can make themselves independently don't make that much of a difference. I know that sounds like I'm saying nothing matters. It's not that nothing matters, but it's that there often isn't a black and white about if your child plays violin, something very different happens for them than if they did something else. 
Um, and the thing is, we hear lots of things. Like she said, you know, we do hear about music and math. And there might be some connection. But as far as we can tell in the data that she shared, it's not such a clear connection that if your child plays a musical instrument, they will be better at math or definitely a lot better at math. Doesn't mean they shouldn't play a musical instrument, but it it could still be important to know what to expect and what not to expect. So I thought that was interesting that in a lot of these things that she talked about, it wasn't that we could say this is the superior way of doing things. Um, It's not that black and white. Even video games, we think video games are bad. And this is for me another thing that uh, is important to think about in anything of life is that rarely are things so black and white about something or to look at it as, is it good or bad? Social media, is it good or bad? Well, it's a lot more complicated than that. And even video games, sometimes we think, well, it's going to have this huge negative impact. And it can have a negative impact. That's the thing that we have to keep in mind. But that it's not that video games themselves are going to definitely hurt your child. Like most things in moderation, it actually can be okay. So we shouldn't think of it that way of being so black and white. And so even during the commercial break, people will say things like, uh, what should I do with my five-year-old? What should I do with this age? And those questions, there's not going to be a simple answer to them because raising your child is going to be, first of all, raising your specific child. And there's going to be so many things that you have to, to look at that no one could just tell you, do this and it's going to be okay. So going back to what I mentioned earlier, we are often looking for this very clear answer and then we look to other people to give us that answer. And so now I want to transition to something related to this. So as I said, a lot of the things in the the research, it doesn't give us a clear answer. And also I should mention this. There's also reasons behind that, that one is they might not be that different. The other is that many things are very hard to study or research because if you try to say, okay, well, kids who play sports versus kids who don't play sports as a child. The problem is you can't just do it that easily because there could be a difference between the children that the families, the backgrounds, other things that get into sports versus those that don't. And they might not just be about what happens when they're into the sport. So they do try to control for these things and try to tease apart the information, but it's hard to do some of this research in such a clear way to get some definitive answers. So often the research is a little bit vague. It's not going to give you those clear answers. So it doesn't mean these things don't benefit us or they don't have any impact. It's just telling us that the research is still not clear on that. Or oftentimes it might be clear, but it's small. It's not a huge impact that we can at least tell at this point. But what I wanted to talk about now is something often you'll hear about mom shaming, but just making it more general parent shaming. This is something that people deal with a lot, or I'm sure most parents can relate to this, where other parents will tell you as a parent that you're doing something so wrong with your kid, or how could you do this thing? Oh, you you, you raised, you, you breastfed this long? No, 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 you can't do that. You're doing this, what's wrong with you? Or even, you know, saying it in meaner ways. Or someone will post a picture of themselves with their child and someone will say, oh, you're, you're putting the car seat wrong. What are you doing? How irresponsible. And because more pressure tends to be put still, as even in American society, on, on the mother, Moms get it more generally than dads do, but again, we can think of it in a general sense of uh, when you shame someone else. 
And so when I was reading this book, this also came to my mind because when we recognize that so many of these things aren't so black and white, even someone who's looking at all the research is telling us it's not black and white, we should really ask ourselves, who am I to tell someone else they're being such a bad mom or a bad dad? How can we be so sure about that? And so whatever it is we're talking about, if we're shaming someone else, obviously we would hope that would make us think this is not a good thing to do is to shame someone and make them feel bad about how they're doing something. How is that helpful? Um, But we should also ask ourselves, how do I know I'm right when we're shaming someone? You shouldn't do this. Or how could you do that? And I think the parenting realm, we see this very strongly. Now, one of the reasons why we do this is we actually aren't so sure if we're doing it right. And because of that uncertainty that we have, that I'm not sure if I did it right, at times we project that out by putting a certainty that other people are doing it wrong if they do it different from us. It might seem very different, but it's even sometimes the same thing you see with religion, where someone believes what they believe so strongly and they attack people who don't believe what they believe, Some of that often is coming from their own self-doubt about what they're believing, that I don't know if this is the truth. And because of that uncertainty, what will make me feel better is to attack other people and tell them they're so wrong for not believing what I'm believing. It could seem a little bit paradoxical, but it does give us some sense of relief that if I am attacking people who believe differently from me, then it makes me feel like what I believe must be more right, must be more correct. So I think we see this with parents where because they were uncertain themselves and they might have gone through a lot of hardship to do something a certain way, that when they don't see people do something that way, it triggers this feeling that they should attack them. And also, again, of course, it gives them their own feeling of superiority that I'm such a good responsible parent. I did it this way. How could you? How dare you? do things the way that you're doing. It's so wrong and it's so bad. But what we need to recognize is that even the experts don't know that clearly, whoever the experts are on these things. So who are you to say you know for sure? Um, And this is something I see in all domains of life. When we look at social media and the ways people post things that, oh, if you do taxes this way, this is going to happen to the economy. If we do this with COVID, it's going to spread or not spread or be good or be bad. And they're so definitive and so clear when even the experts in whatever field is relevant to that issue are not that confident. So how can you be so confident about something that other people who are experts in that field are not even confident about. And this kind of blows my mind that you see this so much. And I think it's because partially social media encourages this. It reinforces people who are more definitive about things. And if you have more emotion in it, especially anger, I think there was some research recently that showed that angry posts were being promoted even more. It's going to have more Uh, influence or it's going to go further, get more attention. And a big part of why people post on social media is to get that attention, that reinforcement. So they go towards that being more definitive. If you say, I think there's two sides to this issue that have points, you likely won't make a lot of a big splash. But if you say something is so wrong, or people are so stupid to think this way, or to do it this way is so Uh, good or bad or horrible or stupid or immoral um, or so amazing, you're much more likely to get a 
reaction. So it's interesting to me when I was reading this and, and making that connection because I think so much of what we see when people are attacking other people's ideas is because of their own self-doubt. I'm not sure if I'm right. And because of that, and if I identify so strongly with this, I have to attack you for thinking or feeling differently from me. So whether you're a parent or not, you know, we want to ask ourselves, have I ever engaged in this kind of parent shaming? Because I think non-parents probably do it sometimes too. They might just still say, oh, why is that parent doing that? But either way, ask yourself if you've done that. You know, it reminds me of a part in this book where it talked about bullying. And usually when we talk about bullying, we think, well, what if my child is the victim of bullying, which is important to think about and be aware of. I think it's so important when it comes to that to make your child feel comfortable to tell you anything, especially negative emotions, which would include telling you if they're being bullied or hurt by someone at school in some way. Um, but what I, you know, she mentioned something about this, about what if your child is the bully? And I think sometimes we almost forget that part. Everything we talk about is the victims of bullying. And, you know, if your child is the victim of bullying, which of course that happens, but, you know, obviously there's someone bullying those kids. It's not a one-way street. It wouldn't exist if there was only victims. There has to be someone perpetrating it. And we sometimes want to forget that part that, you know, maybe my child is the one that's, that's doing those those things as treating kids in the wrong way. And we have to be open to that too, that it does happen. Um, and we want to be aware of that and approach that in a way that we we're respecting that. So it's just a little side note that I thought was kind of funny, but this is kind of a type of bullying that adults will do that might feel okay because we tell ourselves I'm doing it because I want to teach this mom or dad about how to take care of their kids. And they're doing it so the wrong way. That, that I have to tell them and maybe even tell them in this way. But we have to come off of our high horse when it comes to that and realize, first of all, I'm not so sure I'm even right to begin with. Second of all, they haven't asked for my input. And anytime we give advice, we always have to be aware that if it's unsolicited, usually that means we definitely shouldn't give it. In rare occasions, we maybe should. But when we cross that boundary, we want to be very aware of how we approach that. So if you're giving unsolicited advice, I think you have to be double as careful of how you say that. And then lastly, if I say it, it should not be in a shameful way. I should not try to make the person feel bad about who they are. Uh, I would hope all of us have the mindset that everyone is trying their best in life in general, but that parents are trying their best to take care of their kids, to raise their kids. And so if you're saying something in a way that is intentionally shaming them or trying to make them feel bad, we should always recognize that that is coming from some weakness in ourself that we're projecting out to them. I'm not sure about myself, so I want to attack them and tear them down. I'm not so sure about my ideas about things. I want to attack their ideas. I'm not so sure about my behavior and how I did things. If someone does it differently, I want to attack them to make sure they feel bad and in that way feel better about myself. So, you know, you see a lot about this parent shaming, mom shaming recognize that if it's happened to you, yes, that's very important, but also let's be aware of when we've done it ourselves, even in subtle ways, and recognize where it might be coming from and try to put an end to it. You know, as a victim of something, it's harder to put an end of something if you're the one recognizing how you're perpetrating it, you can stop that immediately. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So, you know, in this last segment, I wanted to continue on this theme of 
of parenting. And as I mentioned in this book, The Family Firm by Emily Oster, she talks about different decisions that we have to make. Uh, but I think more important than that, having the right framework of how you make the decisions. And so, as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't mean the decisions don't matter. They matter a lot. Uh, but it's realizing that often for most things, there isn't going to be a black and white about this is definitely the right thing for all people um, and this is the wrong thing or you should all do it this way. It's going to be more nuanced than that and you have to look at your own family and different dynamics because uh, you know, oftentimes, for example, parents will have to make a decision about how to use their, their time or what to do with something in their life. And if you think it's going to be the same for everyone, you might not make the best decision based on your family dynamics. Let's say one of the parents has to work on the weekends. That might change how they do things. So they might have to adjust things. Or, um, you know, you like to have family dinners together. As I mentioned, she brings that up in the book. That could affect what you're doing. So the decisions do matter. We have to just be very deliberate and look at our own dynamics and make that best decision. What I wanted to talk about in this segment is that often what I think parents can get wrong. And so this is looking at this theme of family firm a business and also recognizing when it can go wrong, in my opinion, because something I've noticed with a lot of families is the parents can feel like they're no longer parents. They're almost like the managers of their children, um, especially when it comes to things like school and also extracurriculars. So we focus on just, okay, did they get their homework done? What are their grades? And even that's how they interact with the child. Did you do your homework? Did you get everything done? What did you do for this? Did you study for this one? When are you doing this thing? And they can make their whole life into managing their children. And what gets lost in this is an actual relationship with the child. And so you'll hear me when I talk to callers often bring this up, is realizing that in our children's lives, especially as they get older, we can not have as much control as we would like. First of all, we should realize we don't have control and that's not even a good thing. But what we have a lot of control over is our relationship with our child and how that is going. And so my concern is, yes, if we think of it as a business, it is very good and the way she presents it does it in a right way. But I think some parents take that to a type of extreme where they almost think, well, yeah, it's like a business and I'm my child's manager, I'm their boss, and I'm just supposed to make sure they do all the right things. And I think this is a big shame and a harm that can happen in, in families. And I would always ask to look at the relationship you're having with your child. And so that's even why, and she brings this up in the book in different ways, when you're making decisions for your child or in your child's life, not to just make them yourself, but to actually have an interaction with your child and make them part of the process. So it's not that I'm just making a decision and that's the only thing that matters. What matters is my child being a part of the process and the relationship I have with them. So this is something that as a parent you need to look at when you think of your the time you're spending with your child. Sometimes I, I talk to parents and if they really look at their interactions with their child, it's almost never about anything other than getting things done. Um, and, and this is more commonly the mothers might take on this role, but it's not always. But you do see it more often that they can be the one that's more responsible for taking on things. And, has beca and because of that, they get more focused on that. And they can realize that almost everything they do with their child or talk to their child about is either about school about extracurriculars, about how things are going in those domains, and not actually about a relationship with them. 
So you have to ask yourself that. Am I communicating with my child about things outside of school, outside of um, what they're doing in their extracurriculars? Am I actually creating and maintaining a relationship with them? And oftentimes we see that that's not the case. And what I've also seen is what this can lead to is children will pull more and more away from their kids as they get older. So I'll work with some families and, you know, you'll hear this a lot. Say, oh, my, my kids don't, they don't tell me anything. I never know what's going on in their life. Now, a lot of things could be going on. One is there's a developmental part of that. As your children enter adolescence, it actually makes sense for them to tell you less about their lives for more, multiple reasons. One is they're getting older and there's things that might feel more private to them about their body and things that are going on in that way that they, they want to keep private. Also, very importantly, they're turning more towards their peers, towards their friends to talk about things, to get their opinions. They care more about what they think than what you think. So they're going to be telling you less because now they're talking to their friends more. So it does actually make sense for them to tell you less about what's going on. That's okay. That doesn't mean something is really wrong. Now they're telling you less, but it doesn't mean they should be telling you nothing. And this is where you have to look at, okay, there's some developmental things that make sense, but let me look at my individual relationship with my child, with my teenager. And so what they might realize is, am I making it easier or harder for my child to tell me things? This is something we have to ask ourselves. Rather than just saying, my child doesn't tell me anything, that's not the only question. And that's what parents sometimes do. And they put it all on the child. Yeah, my child doesn't tell me anything. I ask them or I want to know. I tell them you can tell me anything, but they don't tell me and they blame the child. Now, some of them could be, you know, could be related to your child and their own characteristics, but we always want to look at what's in my control. What am I doing? And so you have to ask yourself, how easy do I make it for my child to tell me things? Not do I want to know? Of course, you want to know what's going on in your child's life. What you have to ask yourself is how easy do I make it for my child to talk to me about things? How much do I make it that they can feel comfortable to share things with me? And so often the parent that wants to know everything, I want to know what's going on in your life, they might not realize that that's coming from a place of anxiety and your child is going to feel that anxiety. That it's not going to be, I just want to know to be close to you. It's, I want to be close because I want I'm afraid of not knowing, and I want to be close because I want to be able to control you, even in an unconscious way. I want to know what's going on so I can fix the problems. If anything's wrong, make it better. And because of that approach where it's coming from the anxiety and you're trying to get the information from someone, they're more and more likely to push back because we don't like when someone approaches us with anxiety. Of course, we don't like if it's then going to try to be to control what's going on. And so because of that, we'll feel more comfortable not telling them things. Even with young kids, I've worked with them where they said, well, I don't tell my mom or dad when something happens at school because they make too big of a deal. If I tell them my, my teacher said something I didn't like, they come and yell at the teacher in the school. So of course, I'm not going to want to tell them something. So it's not just about, do you want to know? How easy do I make it for them to tell me things? It's not about the wanting. Uh, another thing is how you respond emotionally to what they tell you. What I mean is like how strongly you react. So the behaviors might be there. That can be a problem, but also how you react. So if your child says, oh, you know, uh, one of my friends got in a fight and then you freak out. <gasps> no, no, no. We have to fix it. What happened? I'm going to call the mom. 
Well, that reaction emotionally, even before you call anyone or make it a big deal, can make it less easy for someone to share something with you. So when we talk about creating space for someone to share something, whether it's the words themselves, but also the feelings, it means you have to create what sometimes is called in, in psychology type of terms like a container. You have to be able to contain first your own feelings, but then what the person is sharing with you. But if as soon as someone tells you something, you start freaking out, I had a bad day and you're, no, 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 you had a bad day, I don't know, what can we, what happened? Let me make you happy. What should I? Well, the person is going to feel like I'm afraid to tell you because now I feel like I have to take care of your feelings. And this is, um, I think, illustrated very well in the book, The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller, where a child can learn to take care of their parents' feelings rather than the other way around. The parents should be helping the child to deal with and manage their feelings. But if you can't take care of your own emotions, the child is going to learn that I have to take care of you. And if that's the case, it can be easier not to tell you. So a child will learn to hold things in. So if your parent is not, if your child is not telling you things, you have to ask yourself, how easy am I making it for them to tell me things? So that could be one way is that you get too anxious and freak out. Another is that you get too angry, which can be coming from the same place. Sometimes we get angry because we want to control what's going on and it's not going the way that we want. And so if you're getting very angry at your child, well, of course, they're not going to tell you things. This is another thing I see in a lot of families where they'll tell me, I tell my kid to tell me anything, anything you want, you can say what's going on. And then the child comes and says, oh, I got a D on a test. And the parents start screaming and yelling and throwing things. And so you verbally said you can tell me anything, but have you shown that they can tell you anything? If you respond with intense anger and judgment and punishment anytime your child opens up, that's not going to reinforce for them to now keep opening up to you. So you have to be aware of how you react. Again, often the reason why parents want to know what's going on in their child's life is not to be close to them and to be a support. It's because they want to control. They want to know what's going on so they can do what they want and make what they want happen. Even parents will bring their kids to therapy. And I've had this uh, happen where you can tell part of why they want their child to go to therapy is they think the therapist is going to tell them what's going on in the, the their life, in the kid's life. Not again just because they want to be supported and they want to be there, but they want to be able to have control and to know what's going on and think, okay, the therapist can be awake. He won't tell me, but he'll tell the therapist. The therapist tell, tells me and now I know. And that's not what therapy should be about of trying to get information or do investigation into your child in that way. It should be about helping your child deal with those feelings and giving them a space to talk about or deal with those emotions. You might be included in that process, but if you're doing it to get the information out of them, that's the wrong approach. So we have to really look at how am I responding to what my child tells me in making it easier or harder for them to open up. So if your child never opens up to you, and I know uh, parents will sometimes say this in this kind of complaining way, again, as I said about the kid, you need to look at yourself. How easy do I make it or hard do I make it for my child to tell me things? I see this often in, in the clients that I see that they will tell me I can't talk to my parents about things. I even want to open up more, but every time I do, it becomes too big of a deal. They freak out too much. And so because of that, I, I can't tell them something. And so this comes back to this theme of the relationship. Don't just think of your job as a parent as fixing things, making sure my kid does these things, doesn't do these things, looks a certain way, gets into this type of a career or doesn't. Um, but 
I want to focus on my relationship with my child. Does my child see me as a mom or a dad, or do they just see me as someone who's trying to pick what they do, choose what they do, and tell them, do this or don't do that? Which brings me, as I said about the control, to this analogy I really like when you think about raising your kids, which also relates to this theme that I was saying that it's not about there's always this one way to do things, that every child should do it this way, that this is good, this is bad, in a black or white way that you actually want to look at your child. And the analogy is this. When you have a child, it's like you've been given a seed and you don't know exactly what type of plant that seed is going to turn into. You just cannot know. Your job is to love and nurture that seed the best way that you can so that it grows into its full potential in the most beautiful way that it can. So it reaches that full potential. So you give it that, the, the soil, water, sunlight, all those things, if we think of it as a seed, and you let it become what it can become. It's not that you see the plant growing and you pull some of the leaves in this direction. You say, no, 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 flowers are really good, so it has to sprout in this way. Or no, it's supposed to be really big, that's better, or should be facing that way. If you do all that, you're probably going to kill it or interfere with its growth. But if you look at it as a flower or, sorry, as a plant that you don't know what it's going to become, all you're trying to do is allow it to reach its potential. There isn't this one way that everything has to go. I'm supposed to just follow these principles of giving my child love and nurturing and having that relationship with them and letting them become what they need to become or what they can become. And so if we recognize that, a lot of what parenting is, is actually getting out of the way of that growth, not interfering with what's supposed to happen. When I say getting out of the way, it doesn't mean neglecting them, but recognizing that I'm not the one that's supposed to make them become something. It's not my responsibility or even helpful to try to force them to become a certain way. And actually how I can help my child often the most is by creating that type of loving relationship with them, where whatever type of plant they are becoming, I make them feel okay about how they are lovable the way that they are. Not lovable, lovable if they do this or if they don't do this. Lovable just because they exist. And this, what's the opposite of that is giving them some sense of shame is something that it's a very quintessential negative thing that we see um, in, in our psychology or in how we relate to ourselves in our lives. But something that has been really vivid in my face lately with some of my clients, just personal experience, seeing how critical this issue of shame is. And the opposite of feeling shame is to feel that you're okay the way that you are. I love you the way that you are. So if we recognize we're given this seed and that there isn't one right way to be, we can recognize that I'm going to love and respect you no matter what you are, because you deserve love. You're worthy of love for just being. And if we can recognize my focus as a parent shouldn't be to make you do certain things and just manage you, but to have a relationship with you, I think we'll go a long way towards that. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful night.